from an employee in the in the labor union perspective, uh, I would say that this increase is really long overdue, and it's something that all employees and employers will be watching. I think employers will adjust. Employers will adapt. Some of them will wind up increasing their wage scales, and some of them will say uh, we need to try and find other ways of adapting to this regulation. All of those are obviously on the table. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello, and welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrogi coming to you from Boston, Massachusetts. I write a blog called Law Sites and uh, also co-host another Legal Talk Network program called Law Technology Now with Monica Bay. And this is Craig Williams coming to you from sunny Southern California. I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court. And Bob, before we introduce today's topic, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Clio, online practice management software program for lawyers at www.goclio.com. Thank you, Cleo. Uh, this month, the Obama administration announced new regulations pertaining to overtime pay. Uh, under the new rules, those who earn salaries of less than $47,476 a year will automatically qualify for overtime pay of time and a half if they work more than 40 hours a week. Well, that's a significant change, Bob, because previously those who earned more than $23,660 a year were exempt from overtime pay. The new rules are estimated to affect nearly 4.2 million workers in the United States when they go into effect this year, starting December 1st. So what does this mean for business owners and their employees? Well, today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to take a look at these recent overtime rule changes, the impact pros and cons, and reactions from our guests. And Bob, our first guest today is Jane Lauer Barker. She's a partner at the New York labor and employment firm, Pitta & Giblin. She concentrates in labor, employment, and employee benefits law, as well as litigation and labor union representation. Previously, she headed up the New York State Attorney General's Labor Bureau, where she oversaw civil and criminal enforcement of state labor laws and handled appellate litigation. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Jane. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. Also joining us today is Thomas Wassell, a labor and employment partner with the New York firm Cullen and Dykeman. Tom has been advising employers on a wide range of labor and employment law matters since 1983. You can find out more about Tom and his firm at cullenanddykeman.com. That's C-U-L-L-E-N-N-D-Y-K-M-A-N.com. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Tom Wassell. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Good to have you. So, who of you want? Which of you would like to volunteer to step up to the plate and give us an overview of what's been announced here by the Obama administration? The basic um, issue here is what we call the minimum salary. Um, just for your listeners, some basics on on overtime. All employees are entitled to overtime if they work more than forty hours in a work week. However, certain employees are considered to be exempt. And in order to be exempt, generally speaking, you have to be paid on a salary, there has to be a minimum salary, and you have to satisfy certain duties in order to be considered exempt. Now, the only change that's been made by the new regulation is the minimum amount of salary. It's a big change, 
but uh, that's the only part that's changed. In order to be exempt, you still have to fall into what we call the uh, white-collar exemptions, the executive, administrative, or professional exemptions, and we could easily spend an hour talking about what all those mean, more than an hour, but that's not what's been changed, so that's not what we'll talk about too much today. What has been done, though, as you mentioned, is the the minimum salary in order to be exempt has more than doubled, uh, or will more than double as of December 1st. This is going to have an effect. Uh, it's been estimated, as you said, on about 4.2 million employees, although I suspect that the effects that have been forecast by the Department of Labor are a little bit overstated simply because employers are going to react to this and restructure, in some ways, their workforce. There's a few different ways they can do that. Certainly, if you have employees who have been exempt and have not been getting overtime and nothing changes, they're going to get overtime now, which is going to increase employers' payroll costs and increase their salary costs. On the other hand, employers are free to reduce the wages of those people, the weekly wages, so that if they have to pay overtime on top of that, it would come out to roughly the same amount of money. There's all sorts of mathematical ways to figure out how to do that, which actually could hurt employees, particularly if they don't work overtime hours in a particular week, they'll make less money. Uh, Some people may have their wages increased to meet the new minimum if they're close to it. I don't know that employers are going to double people's salaries, but if they are close to it, they may get increased. And there's various other permutations of of all those things that might take place. So I I don't know that the numbers that are being bandied about are, are quite accurate, in my opinion. Yeah, that was a very accurate and concise description of the changes, Tom. Um, I would note that the Labor Department issued a, a notice of proposed rulemaking some time ago, which resulted in in this change. And in that notice, they actually did seek comments on whether they should change the duties tests that have to be applied to determine if, in addition to being uh, receiving this minimum salary and be paid on a salary basis, you have to satisfy in order to be an exempt employee. And they chose not to change the duties test, primarily in response to comments and objections that were posed by the employers. So the other reason I think they chose not to is because in the Labor Department's view, the salary test is basically the most critical test and one of the best tests for determining if someone actually fits within the white-collar exemption. Because if they make a higher salary, the Labor Department sort of uses that as a gauge of whether the person's going to be doing exempt work, which is primarily work that is managerial-type work. It's work that's important to the running the business of the employer, and it's work that requires the exercise of independent judgment and discretion. So a lot of what I've been reading about this is uh, kind of uh, talking about the different ways that employers might respond to this change. And one of the suggestions I've seen uh, come up a number of times, and Tom, I think you might have even just alluded to this, is, is that they could even, nothing to stop them from actually lowering employees' salaries in order to sort of come out net under this new law. So, Jane, I'm just kind of wondering, as, as somebody who represents employees and, and labor unions, do you see this as a, a good thing? Is this a win for employees? Well, I think, I mean, the Labor Department, of course, solicited comments from everybody. And 
the employees and, and labor unions universally endorsed the need to increase the salary level, the minimum salary level, because it had not been updated since 2004. And that was the only update ever made to that part of the Fair Labor Standards Act since the 1970s. And the result of not updating it was, of course, that fewer and fewer people were getting overtime, even though they were working many, many hours in excess of 40. So I think there's universal applause on the part of employees for this change. And I don't know how many employers are going to be able to take the route in general or generally applied to their workforce of making sure that they don't increase the wages that or the salary that the workers obtain by really reducing the amount of pay that goes into the base salary and then figuring out what overtime is needed in order to keep them at the same pay rate. I have a feeling that's going to be a little difficult to do overall. I mean, this, this rule is out there. Employees and labor unions know about it. And I think there's going to be pressure from all sides of employee organizations that the employer not take that approach, which is, well, you're going to get overtime, but you're going to get less money. So I think that's going to be a problem for many employers to do that as a general way of approaching this. And speaking of employers, there has been a significant backlash from employers claiming that it's just going to run them out of business and they're going to pass the costs along to consumers, the losses that they've had to pass those along to consumers. Tom, what is your sense of how this is going to play out in the long run for consumers? Well, I think that there's going to be some impact. There's no doubt about it. I think most employers probably would agree that some change in the minimum salary was actually necessary. The information I have is that in 1975, 65% of all employees fell below the exempt level, so could not be considered exempt. And right now, before the proposed change goes into effect, only 7% of all employees make less than that level. So it certainly has uh, devolved into almost everybody, if they meet the duties test, can be exempt. And, And maybe that's swung too far. However, I think it would be somewhat a fantasy to say that employers are simply going to say, okay, we're going to incur what I think has been estimated at something like uh, $1.2 billion uh, in estimated costs and not do something to try and control that. And as I said, among the ways that they can control that is they could simply say, uh, well, first of all, they could say, you can't work more than 40 hours in a week anymore, period. And therefore, Uh, the law only applies for people who work more than 40 hours in a week. It doesn't do anything to minimum wage or salaries generally. It's only overtime. They could say you were making $800 a week to work a 45-hour week, and now I'm going to reduce it to something like $750 a week. But since you're going to work a 45-hour week, you're also going to get some overtime. And you know what? The the total salary is going to come out to be about the same. That's probably above the heads of certain employers to do something like that. Uh, or employers can just change, change these employees to hourly employees and say, from now on, you get paid for the number of hours you work. And if you work more than 40, you will get paid overtime. Uh, and some employers aren't going to like that, surprisingly. Some employees, I should say, aren't going to like that. 
while I, you know, I certainly can't argue that in principle this is going to provide more money to employees and they should be happy about it, I have definitely been involved in situations where uh, I've advised clients that certain employees might not meet even the current test for exemption and the employees did not want to be reclassified as hourly employees because they felt it was a demotion. They don't like to keep track of their time and to have to you know, punch in or, or, or keep records about when they're working or when they're not, or they like to work in the evening or be available by cell phone. It's a sense of responsibility. And all of that type of activity would be working time that employers may have to compensate now, and they may not want to do that. You know, one thing that the Labor Department pointed out as a benefit for the employees, and I, I think this is a benefit, is that if the employer has to pay overtime, as Tom said, they may not require the overtime work. And that does give a benefit to employees, that they will have more free time to spend with their families. You know, the, the studies show that if people who don't work like uh, 60, 70 hours a week actually have a healthier lifestyle. So um, improved work-life balance, all of those things are benefits that this rule might have the effect of, of achieving for employees, which is not all bad. I've heard that as well, and I, I don't disagree that for certain employees, they may welcome, instead of say, I don't have to work 45 hours a week anymore, I can only work 40 and have spend more time with my family. That's, that's one theoretical outcome of this. But at the same time, we live in an age where employees get ahead by working hard. And if they're told there's a limit to how hard or at least how long you can work, they may not view that necessarily in a positive light. But unfortunately, or fortunately, as the case may be, these provisions are not waivable. Employees cannot agree, uh, you know what, I don't want overtime. I want to be able to work 45 hours, and I know it's going to cost you too much money, so I, I like things the way they are. That's simply not allowable under the law. I, I know I saw a recording of President Obama uh, announcing this uh, change, and he said that uh, if employers don't want to pay the overtime, they can just uh, increase everybody's salaries above the uh, $47,476 a year uh, limit. So that's another way around it, I guess. <laughs> there are actually, uh, in some of the comments that were made by employer groups to the proposal by the Labor Department, a number of them noted that their entry-level managers were already being paid over the minimum salary level. So, isn't, isn't this, Jane, going to result in more part-time people? Won't employers react to this by simply saying, look, I'm just going to hire more part-time people and avoid this point break? Well, I think what is possibly going to happen is that if they decide not to pay overtime, which they may do, they will hire part-time or maybe they will add more hours on to the person who works part-time, which is also a benefit for the part-time workers. Part-time workers sometimes don't get the hours because they're given to the, the person who's required to work 45 or 50 hours a week. So it might actually work to the benefit of the part-time workers. And it, we should remember that historically there were two main purposes for enacting the overtime laws back in 1938. Uh, one was to compensate employees who worked the longer hours, but it was also essentially a jobs creation type of package. Uh, President Roosevelt and, and, and in the New Deal wanted to encourage employers to hire more employees. So by making them pay time and a half, it was kind of a penalty Rather than do that, they could hire new employees at straight time to, to fill out those hours. 
where the equation or the calculus has changed somewhat over the years is nowadays, of course, employers have large costs in the form of health insurance and social security taxes and payroll taxes and, and all the like. And the cost of benefits to employees can easily exceed a third or, or even a half of the employee's actual salary. So many employers have found it actually more economical to push employees harder and work overtime rather than hire new employees who are untrained and, have, and require additional benefit payments. So there's a whole calculus involved there, a whole uh, analysis as to whether the current overtime formulation really serves the public purpose for which it was intended. Before we continue our discussion, we need to take a, a short break, and uh, we'll pick up our discussion of the uh, overtime rules changes in just a few moments. Please stay with us. Hi, my name is Kate Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack takes a look at the process of moving to the cloud. Now, how long does it take to move to the cloud, and is it a difficult process? No. With most cloud computing providers, moving your data into the cloud is something that takes just minutes, not hours or days to do. You can get signed up and running with most services in just a few minutes. And even if you have an existing legacy set of data that you want to migrate to a web-based practice management system like Clio, there's migration tools and migration services that we're able to offer to ease that process. So most firms can be up and running in the cloud in less than five minutes and can have their data imported in a matter of hours or days. We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. And if you'd like to get more information on Clio, feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O dot com. And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. This is Craig Williams, and with us today is Jane Lauer-Barker, a partner at the New York labor and employment firm Pitta & Giblin, and Thomas Wassel, the labor and employment partner with the New York firm Cullen & Dykeman. Jane, I think we just about cut you off right before the break, but let's finish your thought. Yeah, I just wanted to throw in one other um, part of the new regulations, which is that in response to employer comments, the Labor Department final rule provides that up to 10% of the salary threshold for the salaried employees can be met by non-discretionary bonuses or incentive pay or commissions. So, that was one thing that the employers did want because they, I think, were looking at these people, as Tom pointed out, as people who sort of see themselves as maybe on an upward track to a higher management position and want to be invested in the company. And these incentive programs sometimes do that. So in response to these comments by the employees, the Labor Department said, you can do that. You can use 10% of the salary threshold in these types of bonus programs, but it has to be paid. And they can't promise it and then not pay it. And that's absolutely correct. I agree. And that is a benefit to employers. So uh, roughly uh, $91 a week could consist of non-discretionary bonus payments. And this is important, for, say, for employees in the financial services industry, for example, who uh, make a large portion of their income through bonuses or commissions on products they may sell. So yes, that is definitely 
a benefit for employers. One of the other aspects of this, though, that I don't know if I'd call it troubling, but it's certainly a problem, is that this is not going to end here. Under the regulation, every three years, the Department of Labor is going to do a new analysis and, and publish a new number. So in 2020, presumably the $47,000 number is going to go up probably to in excess of $50,000 a year, and it will gradually creep up over time. Some may argue that that's a good thing, that it shouldn't be kept static, but that means that every three years, employers are going to once again need to audit their workforces and adjust their their pay schedules in order to meet the changing requirements. How does this affect teachers? From what I understand, teachers are generally exempt from overtime, but will this new law apply to them as well? Well, teachers are not subject to the salary basis uh, test, so I think it isn't going to impact them as much as it does uh, certain other jobs. Yeah, I would agree with that. So, uh, Jane, what exactly is the scope of this? Who does this affect and who doesn't this affect? Well, I think there's like a huge class of people who work in administrative jobs. That's what I would call them. Like they're the they're the entry-level managers in retail stores. They're people who work as, you know, billing clerks or people who are assistants to other people who are doing work of the organization. I see this most of it applying to the assistant managers who you see throughout the retail environment uh, across the United States in Walmart, in uh, Starbucks, in, in all of those places where we see someone there who could be called a working foreman or who could be called an assistant manager who's going to be the people who are most affected by this. And I would agree with that in general, that it's probably the, the mid-level managers. One would hope that the higher-level managers are making more than the minimum. The, the mid-level managers are sometimes classified as administrative employees because they don't have the ultimate power, say, to hire and fire or, or, or do a lot of the things in running the business, but they, they work in running the business. You know, one aspect of this rule, of course, though, is there's no geographic discrimination involved here. So employees and employers who work, say, in, in the New York or San Francisco or any other metropolitan area, where, generally speaking, the administrative and, and executive employees may be at or above this number already, are treated the same as employees in, say, rural or, or suburban areas of the country where I would presume, without having done a survey, that some of these salaries are much lower. So some of those uh, Walmart assistant managers in, in say, Arkansas are, are probably a lot farther away from the number than, say, somebody in the same store in New York. Jane, what kind right, of judicial would... challenges can we expect to this law? Do you know of any lawsuits that are in the wings that are going to try and knock it down? Well, I would think that, you know, the Chamber of Commerce or one of the business organizations would would try to challenge it because they are vociferously objecting to many portions of this. And I think they may try to say that the Labor Department didn't have the authority to do some of this. The elevating the, the salary level, I think, would be in itself might be hard to challenge, but I think they would try to say that, that they didn't have the authority for that. They may say that they they violated the you know Administrative Procedure Act because they didn't conduct an adequate rulemaking process. They may say that the increase is just too much, too big, and so it's some sort of a, a due process violation for the employers. So I would suspect that there's 
must be some challenge that's coming because just to accept this without um, seeing whether a court might intervene, I think would not make sense from an employer side. And I wouldn't be surprised either if there are some challenges, but even as an employer attorney, I don't really think those challenges stand that much of a chance of success, particularly with the setting of the minimum salary uh, currently. There were something like 270,000 comments received. The rulemaking process began in 2014 and, and really kicked into high gear in 2015 and was considered over a period of a number of months, where there might be an argument under the Administrative Procedures Act is this notion of the automatic increases or, or automatic review every three years without further public comment and notice and an opportunity to be heard. That at least might have some theoretical validity to say you can't, you can't do that automatically. You have to go through this process every time. Congress can also try and stop this, although I don't believe that it would be successful. They have 60 days to pass essentially a resolution disapproving the, the law but uh, I, I doubt that will take place, and I, I believe that probably President Obama would veto it if it was ever adopted. Tom, I'm curious. You mentioned before we went on the air that uh, you're at a labor and employment conference, that the uh, administrator of the Wage and Hour Division was a featured speaker there today. So what's the buzz there at this conference? What are people saying about these changes? Well, yes, I heard uh, David Weil earlier this morning, who is the administrator of the department's uh, wage and hour division. And the and buzz a former the Bostonian, moment... I might add. Oh, there you go. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> from BU. He's from BU. Right now, the buzz is you know, people are talking about it. Everybody's still coming to grips with it. It's only been uh, published uh, maybe was about two weeks now. Uh, and, in fact, the salary level came in less than the proposed rule that was proposed last year. So that was something of a relief, I suppose, for many employers or maybe a disappointment to many employees. But uh, at the moment, everybody is just trying to understand it. And the basic advice that everybody is talking about is that employers need to audit their workforces. It's the kind of thing where I tell my employer clients all the time, you need to review your workforce to make sure that employees are not misclassified. Now you've got this front page story that everybody in the country probably knows about, assuming they read the paper or read the internet, as the case may be. Uh, and you're not going to fly under the radar if you're misclassifying employees, and you'd better get down to it. Then we discuss my hourly rates. <laughs> <laughs> How do these changes affect employees from a tax standpoint? Are people going to lose more than they're going to gain ultimately because of this increased salary? Well, I mean, you know, what taxes are a fact of life. And I think if the number of overtime hours is reduced to a small number by the employer, it's not going to mean very much in terms of increased compensation for the employees. If they actually, you know, raise the, um, the to get them over the exempt salary level, it may mean something. But overall, you know, you're still going to have to deal with the, the taxes. And I don't think that's going to be the primary concern of the employees because everybody wants to make more money. And I think they're going to be happy to see any increase in their pay. What I find kind of interesting to speculate about is if employers actually try to maintain their current, you know, labor cost structure, by reducing or, or by setting the hourly rate at something 
low so that they and the overtime and add in their overtime rate that the employees aren't making much more than they they make already is that something that's going to be a, a useful organizing tool for labor unions because these employees saw that well they should be if they're exempt from overtime they should be making a lot more money and they may decide well you know what if i'm not going to get that maybe i need a labor union to come in here and represent me well, in time, there's been some pushback saying that this is going to sound a death knell for labor unions because now employees are getting what they want. What's been the reaction in the business world? I don't think anybody is viewing this as the death knell for the labor unions. In fact, I, I would kind of agree that this is something that unions can use as a tool to, to help educate employees and say that we, we could be there to fight for you. But there's no doubt in my mind that the country has certainly changed in the last 80 years or so since the the birth or, or let's say the, the, the legalization on a federal level of, of unions in the, with the National Labor Relations Act. Um, employees nowadays do get a lot more in the way of benefits, minimum wage, overtime, Social Security, uh, the list goes on and on and on. And labor unions have to find another way to sell themselves. A, a lot of those advances were first suggested and, and, and lobbied for by labor unions. But now that employees have them, there's certainly an attitude of, what have you done for me lately or what can you do for me? And I, I think that's at least a partial explanation as to why the level of unionization among private sector employees is at uh, something like a 40- or 50-year low. I, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it, it's very low by historical standards. Well, it looks to us like we've just about reached the end of our program, and at this point we'd like to invite our guests to summarize their final thoughts and give us their contact information so our listeners can reach out to you. So, Jane, let's start with you. Okay, thank you. Well, from an employee and a, and a labor union perspective, uh, I would say that this increase in the minimum salary level to establish an exemption from the overtime provisions of the Fair Labor Standards Act is really long overdue. And it's something that employees uh, need in order to have a decent lifestyle. I mean, the current minimum salary level is uh, for a family of four below the poverty level. So from employees' perspective, it's long overdue. We hope that employers are able to determine a way to implement this, which will increase the salaries of the and wages of employees and not decrease them. It's going to be implementation period that uh, all employees and employers will be watching. I can be reached at my uh, email address, which is jbarker at pittagiblin.com. Great. And Tom? Well, I would also agree to the extent that I don't think the sky is going to fall. Um, the, the number prob- did need to go up. Uh, and in fact, many states, including New York, where I practice, and California, where, where I don't yet practice, uh, had actually had a much higher uh, minimum salary than the federal level already, and they will need a much smaller adjustment there. I think employers will adjust, employers will adapt. Some of them will wind up increasing their wage scales, and some of them will say, uh, we need to try and find other ways of adapting to this regulation without materially increasing our labor costs, because if we do, we will have to pass that along to consumers, or we will have to reduce our workforce or cut into profits. I mean, all of those are obviously on the table. I think that all employers need to audit their workforce and make sure they're in compliance because the financial penalties for not being in compliance are fairly severe. It's not just about making up what you owed, but 
with liquidated damages and civil monetary penalties and things like that. And attorney's fees, you could be talking two or three times what you actually owed the employees if you didn't pay them properly. So if anyone wants to reach me, you can reach me at my email address, which is twassell, T-W-A-S-S-E-L, at cullenanddykeman.com, or my Twitter handle, Tom Lawyer. And uh, I look forward to uh, working with anyone. Well, thanks a lot. We've been talking about the Obama administration's new overtime regulations with Jane Lauer Barker, a partner at the New York uh, labor and employment firm Pitta and Giplin, and Thomas Wassell, a labor and employment partner with the New York firm Cullen and Dykeman. Thank you very much to both of you for your taking the time to be with us today. You're welcome. My pleasure. Great. Bob, that brings us to the end of our show. This is Craig Williams with Bob Ambrosi. Thank you for listening. Join us next time for another great legal topic. When you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi for their next podcast, covering the latest legal topic. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Som. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.